stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're with us on the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Just after 1 p.m. this fine Tuesday, really excited to be back in the studio with you, joined by my wonderful compatriots, Greg Nicholson. How are you doing? I'm actually a little bit stressed. In the car on the way here, we are talking only about Game of Thrones. And now I can't like, I can't quite calm down. Which is why Ranjani's with us. Ranjani, you're going to break down the last episode and what, you know, and what we can learn from it in terms of analyzing South African politics. Oh my gosh. Uh, South African politics will flatten Game of Thrones anytime. <laughs> so that's what I'm here. It sounds about. quite similar. Just a bunch of old people trying to, to, to fight for territories. So Power and privilege. Pretty basically. much South African politics. <laughs> Just with it, minus the dragons. Okay, yeah, that's. I'm sure there's a metaphor in there somewhere. We need pop like for that. <laughs> anyway, the real story of this week is not happening in King's Landing. It's happening in Midrand. Ranjani, the gathering. Yes, we're very excited. It's on Friday. I hope a lot of our listeners are coming. Uh, if you haven't booked tickets, you better book them straight away because as far as I know, we are almost at capacity. Um, but what, what is it for those who don't know? I'm going to tell you now. <laughs> okay, so the gathering is an annual event hosted by Daily Maverick. And what we do is we aim to bring all the major political players and the people who basically, uh, run the affairs of South Africa mm. under one mm. roof and uh, we give them an opportunity to speak and then we put a whole range of questions to them. But in between, we also have South Africa's premier po- um, co- comedians. We have some poetry. So it's it's entertainment, but it's also information. It's em- em- empowering information. It's knowledge about the country. And it's basically Daily Maverick in motion. So... Uh, last year was, mm. um, a major success. Uh, we, uh, last year we had, uh, some major news coming out of the gathering as well with uh, people like Paul, Paul Mashatile, uh, you know, dropping some bombs while they were, they were speaking. And, um, this year we're hoping the same thing will happen. We've got, uh, quite a lineup. We initially intended to have the deputy president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa. He had initially, his office had initially confirmed. But uh, then we were told he has time constraints. So uh, the, initially he was just supposed to come to speak mm. and not answer questions. Now that would actually defeat the point of being there because yeah, we can hear him speak anyway. Yeah. And I think it's the questions and, you know, the interaction Absolutely. that uh, that makes the gathering what it is. Mm. So now what we've got is uh, the Treasurer General of the ANC, Dr. Zuelim Kize. He is quite uh, willing and ready to answer all our questions. And yeah, he's a member of the top, ANC top six. Uh, he's quite a player in South African politics. Um, he said to have the president's ear. So, um, we are really looking forward to it. So he's going to open up, uh, the gathering this year. And then after that, we have the leader of the Democratic Alliance, Musi Maimani, followed by the leader of the Economic Freedom Fighters, Julius Malema. So, if you're coming, make sure you're there by eight o'clock because, uh, we're going to kick off early and that session is, uh, is bound to trend. And then thereafter, we have the uh, mayoral debate, um, for the candidates from the city of Joburg. Mm. So you're going to have, uh, Mayor Parks Tower and the contender for the job, um, Herman Mashaba. 
And a very, uh, and a surprise contender that, you know, the economic freedom fighters have, have not announced their mayoral candidates. So instead of the mayoral candidate, we have the number two in the EFF, Floyd Chivambu will be participating in the, uh, in, in that debate. So the morning political session is going to be really exciting. Mm. Um, and in the afternoon, we've got, um, a big debate on the state of South Africa. And the people, so among the people who are on that panel, uh, will be Jay Naidu, the former minister and now a global activist. Uh, we've got Sasanke Simang, who's a columnist for Daily Maverick, and she's also quite an outspoken activist and, um, and social commentator. Um, we've got Iraj Abidian, who's a, an economist, uh, Mark Haywood, who's also, um, an activist, uh, at, uh, Section 27. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Vavi is down but not out. He still has a lot of Interesting things to say, and he still got big plans in the works. But he's also an important voice mm. still um, on, on on the situation of South Africa. And we've got a surprise guest. I can't tell you who it is, but he is a really, really exciting guest. We don't even know. I yes. don't even know who that is. Yes, Duncan is asking if it's Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> You can't well, confirm let's just say he's, 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 he's <laughs> yeah. a person who's been in the news for a while okay. and he's quite a controversial so figure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and we will close the gathering on Friday afternoon with the one and only, the most South Africa's most wanted, Pravin Gordon. <laughs> Okay, let's hope he doesn't get arrested. I know. <laughs> no, that's not funny. That's actually a disaster. If he's like, no, I can't come. I'm in that's not, let's not laugh about that. And Jenny, just last thing on this, just with the, with the political tension in the country and the, and the headlines, it just feels like this year's gathering has, has an extra sort of excitement. About it is. It, it what is. What are they going to say? What's going to, how does it, I know it's so unpredictable. That's the thing, you yeah. know, and, and the thing about the gathering is like Cliff Central, it's unscripted. Whatever happens, happens, and we deal with it, you know. So um, we have no idea what anybody's going to say there. Um, but we're going to be ever and willing uh, and ready to put the hard questions to them. That's it. If you're listening in and want to know where to get the tickets, you can go straight to Daily Maverick website. It's right at the top. Or you can go to Ticket Pro. Uh, as Jenny mentioned, you know, they're flying like hotcakes. So, you know, get one now or else. <laughs> and don't tweet us asking for free tickets. Please. And if if you miss out on the opportunity yeah. to be there for whatever reason, um, you can uh, watch it on live streaming uh, via enca.com. Yeah. And there will be a link from the Daily Maverick website as well. So if by any chance you're not in Johannesburg or you're not able to attend, make sure that you follow it on live streaming. And the, the hashtag for the day will be Nando's DM Gathering. That's it. Uh, Duncan's also asking if there's free Nando's. At this point, I'm going to stop listening. <laughs> Clearly, there's not much. Well, actually, I mean, it's <laughs> not, is, it's not is. that outrageous a question because last year we gave out vouchers for Nando's. Yeah. So I know I got socks from last year. Yes, I, I got socks. I might be wearing them right now. <laughs> N- Nando's socks. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And they came you in pairs of three or rather yeah. in threes because one's going to go missing. And I thought that was so clever. No, just me. <laughs> Nando's feeding the nation. Anyway, that's tough. Like, I'm not even getting paid. Why am I doing this? Anyway, if you want to talk to us right now, at DM shows at A, we're tweeting there, and you can call in as usual, 0861-555-189. And Jenny, now to look at some of the headlines from late last week and the weekend. It looks like the SACP and ANC are not really on the same page anymore. Well, I don't know. You know, I think the SACP has always been on a different page altogether. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, you know, it's been quite strange because for a while they disappeared off the scene completely. You didn't really bother too much about mm. the SACP 
I was been through a phase where I actually wasn't even reading their statements anymore. It was just normally, you know, their statements would be, "We note this, we note this, uh, we welcome that," and that's at, about it. At the most, for yeah. there was a good couple of years there where it seemed the most interesting thing they were saying was just defending the president. Yes. Um, very, very strongly. Yep. That was about the most interesting thing they were doing. And the only thing they came mm. up in that was, there was fingers pointed at them in terms of their, their role in the, um, in the Kosatu fallout and the Kosatu divisions. Mm. People were pointing fingers at them. Mm. So look, the SACP has been off the, the, the political scene for a while, but they've come back with the bang. And the reason for that is that they are now the most vocal critic of state capture. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, the term state capture came mm. from them. Mm. Um, and they're the ones been pursuing this issue. So it was the um, SACP second deputy general secretary, Salima Paila, who raised this at the um, uh, alliance summit. He put it on the agenda and he is the one who forced the NC to deal with this issue. So it was out of that pressure from the SACP that the NC National Executive Committee then decided uh, to mandate the Office of the Secretary General, that's Gweta Mantashe, along with the National Working Committee to investigate the issue of state capture. And by state capture, that's kind of a euphemism now for the influence of the Guptas. Yeah. So we know exactly what they're talking about. So, um, And we know that everybody else in the NC... Uh, he's kind of tiptoeing around the Guptas and, you know, I, I don't know why that is. I don't know why people are scared of them or maybe they're not scared. Maybe there are other reasons why mm. they decide not to speak out on them. But the SACP has definitely been extremely bold on the issue. Uh, so when the ANC announced after its NEC meeting this weekend, that, I mean, uh, two weeks ago that it was dropping the probe, the SACP went into a foot of rage. Mm, mm. I mean, we've never seen such strong language coming out of the SACP. They're calling it a whitewash. They're saying there's rot in the ANC. They were accusing them of, um, you know, uh, colluding with the, with the, with these people. And, um, the, the very strange statement from Solima Paila was that why are we, we, oh, we would refuse to be in alliance with this faction mm. in the ANC. Mm. So that was quite a strong statement. So there was always a risk that, that th- this past weekend central committee of the SACP would like backtrack a little bit because that was kind of hard language, you know, for, for, um, against the alliance partner. So I was, I went to this media briefing on Sunday thinking, oh gosh, these people are definitely going to backpedal mm-hmm. on this. You know, there's no way they can keep up mm, the pressure. They've gone too far and they're yeah. going to like turn it down. So, um, when we walked into, uh, the briefing room, um, it was quite hilarious because, uh, Bladen's Monday then looks around because the, the entire central committee was still sitting in their chairs and mm. we were called in for a media briefing. So there were no, there was no place. So we were just standing and like staring <laughs> at him and he said, I'm inviting you to take a pot shot of the central committee. And we were like, what? A pot shot? <laughs> you mean a photo op? Yes, that's what I mean. <laughs> okay, so, so he wanted, us to know that there was unanimity in that meeting, that there was support for whatever they were going to announce. So it was just not him and Jeremy Cronin Mm -hmm. and Solly saying these things. So it was interesting. So people did the pot shot and um so then then we then we had the media briefing and like the first few paragraphs of that statement came out very clearly saying mm. we support the position of our deputy oh. uh, second deputy general secretary uh, Salima Pala mm. so they stood behind Sali and they basically backing up everything he is saying on state capture and the Gupta family so that was um quite a surprising yeah. development tell me one 
we're hearing a lot from Solly around this issue has been really vocal, as well as the the spokesperson. I'm pretty sure. Alex? Yes, Alex. Yes. Yeah. One thing I'm wondering though is Blade Blade Inzamanda, the leader of the SACP, doesn't have he hasn't taken a stronger voice. Did you get? From this briefing, did you get that he was fully behind these issues or is he in a bit more of a more difficult space being in cabinet, being close to some of Zuma's um, allies? Look, this is the problem with that alliance because Blaine Zimande, not only is he in cabinet, but he's also a member of the NEC. Yeah. So if the NEC has taken that decision, he's bound by that decision. So if you're straddling both organizations, what do you do? Those, your organization say, we demand an investigation into state capture. The NEC, NC, NEC says, we're dropping the probe into state capture. Then what happens? Um, but he was the one reading the statements yeah. and he and Jeremy Cronin were, were quite willing to, to stand by Solly and they, and they said in no, look, where they, there was this whole ducking and diving game was, who exactly are you pointing fingers at? Because if the Gupta family mm-hmm. has insider information, I mean, Jeremy Cronin has made this allegation that there was a deliberate shorting of the rand, uh, when Nslantla uh, Nene was fired. Okay. So he's saying somebody knew beforehand that Nslantla Nene was going to be fired. So what they did is that they, um, they sold off the, their, their rands and they bought dollars. Uh, because they had they knew, this, was gonna they happen. knew yeah. what was going to happen, um, and then they made a major killing, basically, because you know when um, because the rand fell so badly. So uh, that when we then asked them, so who would yeah. have mm. given the Guptas that, or whoever it is that information? Then they, they, there's this whole uh, obstacle race they run, you know. Then they don't want to answer directly, mm. Mm. Um, and it, it was in that issue in particular, Bladen Zamande said, you know, was trying to say, look, we're not. We're not pointing fingers at any single person. It's the phenomenon of state capture. So around that, they, they're fuzzy. But they are saying that they want to pursue this investigation. They're now going to go to the South African Council of Churches because apparently the South African Council of Churches has made available a legal team and researchers to be able to help whoever wants to complain or to take this, uh, these complaints forward. Okay. So, And that team is led by George Bezos. So the SACP wants to go there, which is hilarious, I think, because the SACP has been a vocal critic of civil society and activists in social, um, civil society. And all of a sudden, they need to now resort to their help in order to take a stand against the ANC. Mm, they have been some of the harshest critics yes. of the foreign-funded, white minority capital. Exactly. <laughs> sort of civil society imperialists. Yes. But also, well, I mean, the, you can't ignore the fact that communists, are going to the churches. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole ideological uh, contradiction uh, there. Uh, are we seeing a deepening division of factionalism within intra-intra alliance politics? Particularly, it seems it seems to be over this issue of state capture. Are uh, are there sort of different camps forming? Look, the dominant. Faction or or the leadership of the ANC is is clear that they don't want to, they want to run away from this issue, okay. but from what we're hearing, there are people in the ANC who are secretly backing and urging the SACP forward to say continue on this line because you know we're being bullied. Mm. Um, the Premier League is the one who's supporting uh, the Guptas. We don't, but we can't say anything. Um, and there's also the de- delicate issue of the role of President Jacob Zuma, because if you pursue this to the, it's lo- the issue of state capture to its logical conclusion, the, the one person who does, uh, you know, all, all kind of fingers point to is President Zuma. And he, only he would have made the decision on Tlantlanene. 
So who would have given the Guptas that information or who would have given anybody information? I mean, the most recent allegation that the SACP uh, has made was that the Guptas knew about the election date before it was announced. And they told people in the Northwest, the Northern Cape, I beg your pardon, uh, about this. The no- these Northern Cape leaders then mentioned it at an alliance <laughs> summit that was attended by Gwede Matasha and Balega and Peter. And they said, but where did you get this from? Like, you see it on social media. No, no, no. The Guptas told, one of the Gupta brothers told us. Sure. Yeah, and um, the, uh, you know, the, 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 these people were beyond. Sully says that uh, both Gwede and Balega were like, you know, astounded that this happened, and they said, "Look, we'll call others who were there." They called the provincial chair, chairman of the ANC in the Northern Cape, and he said, "Yes, yeah. it was a Gupta brother who told us." So obviously, they have an inside track. Now, where do they get that information from? But when it comes to the faction, yeah. the the other dynamic here is Kosatu because the SACP doesn't have big numbers. So it's saying it's going to embark on a mass action campaign against state capture. It's going to rope Kosatu in. Kosatu is running for the hills. It does not want to touch the issue of state capture. If anything, Stumat Lamini made the most astounding statement when the when the Guptas fled to Dubai to say, oh, I've spoken to them. Don't worry. They're coming back as if. You know, we all wanted the that reassurance. Yeah. Like, oh, so, uh, you know, I don't know where Kosatu stands on the issue. They've been it saying seems, that it seems Kosatu's ability to perhaps stand up against a certain faction of the ANC has been significantly diminished, diminished. since Numsa and Vavi, Vavi were left. Both yes. Expelled. So they they're trying to be more cooperative with the ANC and not be to take on that kind of troublemaker role. But the problem is that they're principled issues here. So if you if you know about state capture, if you know about the perversive effect mm. of uh, you know that anyone is having and you don't speak out on it, you can be compromised. So the SACP says it's going to lobby the uh, Kosatu to join them on this campaign. But I, I don't know if, uh, if they're going to do that. Just before we move on, we spoke before about, Kosa- uh, sorry, about the SACP's years almost in the wilderness. Um, what, what do you think's driven them to take this strong stance? Yeah, is sure, it, yeah. is it just a principled decision or are there other political motivations, um, pushing the or encouraging the SACP to stand up? Look, there is an, the, the, a, a, another agenda behind the whole thing, and this is the, these factional battles in the ANC, and ultimately the succession battle that will play out next year. But I think you, if you if you look if you look at it, um, uh, you know, if you take a, a broad kind of overview of it, it's the SACP is bucking the trend of the of the Premier League. So they're going to head to head with this faction that's known as the Premier League. Um, and, uh, the Premier League kind of dovetails with the, the interests of the Gupta family and those who have mm. been working in Tamden with the, with the Guptas. And the SACP is, is, um, you know, trying to, uh, oppose anything that the Premier League is ca- kind of pursuing as their agenda. So um the the guptas is, is one issue but then uh you know you you see it playing out now with the with the compilation of lists for the local government election campaign mm-hmm. where the SACP has also been a vocal critic of how those lists are compiled um because uh Blade Zimande said at this media briefing that they will not support any candidates who came through fraudulent processes and there are lots of allegations of that in several provinces which the SACP has been vocal about mm-hmm. 
about. So they're saying that the dominant faction of the ANC, um, also known as the Premier League, is basically manipulating this list process to get their people on the list and ultimately elected onto municipalities so that the dominance of the Premier League then remains and it sort of penetrates into the, the local government sphere. Sphere. I mean, we've we've been hearing a lot of... <laughs> A lot of, of, of I didn't of, mean to say spear. Spear is a loaded term. Freudian slip. Yes. Got a good, a good, a good giggle. Um, Greg, I know you were reading about this also, just about uh, what's playing out down in KZN and how some of these national teams were were seeing and how they're playing out on a provincial level. Well, well, back to the newsmakers of the month. I think yeah. it is the SACP. Uh, it's SACP KZN uh, Secretary um, Tembo and Tembu. Was surprisingly, um, offered a position in, in the cabinet of new, new premier Willis and Uh, Ranjini, you know a little bit more about that, don't you? Cause he was a, he was a strong critic, wasn't yeah. he? Of the change in, in government, in. In fact, Temam Tembu was at the central, uh, SACP Central Committee this weekend. I saw him there and he looked really grumpy <laughs> and, and angry about like what's been going on in KZN. And, um, uh, the SACP also spoke out harshly on this issue. They were, they were totally against the, the, the recall of Senzo Mkuno. Uh, they said that, um, it would, uh, further cause further divisions in, in KZN. They definitely are opposed to the cabinet reshuffle. So they were caught completely off guard when yesterday the, um, the new premier, Willis Mkunu, then announced that Temba Shembu would be one of the new MECs. So he d- didn't react immediately, but he didn't go to be sworn in this morning because, mm. um, there were consultations within his party mm. as to whether to accept it or not. Because you can't say, I, I, I'm opposed to this, I'm opposed to this. And then the next so day the, you, 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 you know, you're then part of the, the, the new, um, but. Is it is it an olive branch uh, an olive branch from um Zikle, Zikle Zikalala's camp in KZN? I think it was just a good move to outmaneuver the SACP. Uh, because they basically I mean they they, they were stuck between a rock and a hard place mm. on this issue. Because if he didn't accept uh the MEC position, it means he wants to stand on the sidelines and, and, and shout at the NC. It means that he uh, he just wants to Continue to be critical, uh, without wanting to contribute to building the province, you know, in, in, in what, in ANC Palance, mm. that's what they say, you know, build the unity and advance the interests of the National Democratic Revolution, blah, blah. So, you know, if he, if he, if he goes against that, then he's seen to just be a counter-revolutionary yeah, force or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas if he, he's now accepted, um, the position, uh, of MEC for agriculture, what it does is that it, it brings him on board this, um, uh, uh you know, this, uh, this agenda that this new faction has. Look, one of the, the allegations is that they want uh, the new leadership in the province mm. to assist the NC in its election campaign. Understandably. That, yeah. So they basically want the, gov- the, the KZN government to subsidize, to assist the NC in its, in its campaigning. So, um, you know, if he, if he is now an MEC, does he go there and say, no, I'm not going to support the ANC campaign? Then why are you there? Um, if he takes the position and says, no, I'm here for an, uh, uh, he can't basically say I'm here to carry out, uh, the program or the mandate of the SACP because he's not there on an SACP ticket. The SACP didn't uh, fight that election. He's there on an ANC ticket, which means he's bound to implement whatever the ANC tells him to do. 
So that's the dilemma. And you've seen it at a national level mm. where um, people who are in the national parliament or in cabinet. So people like, like Tulas Ngesi, Blaine Zimande, Jeremy Cronin. Yeah. Um, they are there. They're still leaders in the SACP. But when they are in cabinet or in parliament, they have to implement what is the program of the NC. Um, so they, they can't do their own thing. They can't vote against positions of the, of the ANC. So this is the, the, what's going to now happen with Temam Tembu in KZN. So although he's been critical of this, this faction, he's now basically taken the job and agreed, uh, to do whatever they want him to do. And I saw, I think I read it in the Mail and Guardian, I think it was a, a very sort of low-key allegation that the Premier League was behind some of the violence that's playing out in KZN. I think two SACP members were killed, I think, leaving a leaving a, a, a party meeting or leaving some kind of conferencing and they were killed. And there seems to be just allegations that some big players are behind some of the violence going on there. Well, this is the thing because, the, the, you know, the SACP has made these allegations yeah. very strongly. So this is why it's, you know, it's an even stranger move that all of a sudden uh, Tembam Tembo is now part of the provincial government because he is basically been accu- accusing that dominant faction in KZN who runs, the, now running the government of being behind, uh, you know, these illicit happenings in, uh, in KZN and, and, uh, the, the violence. But also, you know, where, uh, as I said, with the compilation of election lists, yep. um, that, you know, they, they have been extremely unhappy with how the lists have been, uh, uh compiled, but it'll be, much more difficult for him now to con- continue criticizing this and, and those people will be on the list. Um, how then does this SACP, uh, support those people and ensure that they are elected as councillors when they have a principal stand against mm. them? It's, it's, uh, really quite a dilemma for and them. Potentially a very smart move from the KZN. Oh, absolutely. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Really yeah. I think like. they, they did, it was, you know, a genius move really to, to box them in. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have on this. I know I'm about to let you go, Jenny. Anything else we need to be watching between now and seeing you at the gathering? Uh, no, I don't no. think so. No. Um, well, it's obviously the, the, the terror alert, which, um, I, I believe there have been some developments today. I, I hear that News 24 is reporting that there's a discredited person behind, uh, the allegations and, um, they, they're getting that from South African government sources, but I believe you're going to be talking about that in the next part of the show. Absolutely. Um, yeah, but other than that, it seems hopefully as like a, like a quiet week. The president's gone off to, or going off to Lesotho, so. <laughs> there's not much that can be happening but there's another big event on um, on Friday and that is the spy tapes case it will also be heard in in court on uh, or argued the um, the appeal, appeal will be argued yes the, the, the petition to appeal which will, will be very interesting it will be interesting legal experts say that the presidency and the MPA will have a very difficult time getting leave to appeal yes and if if they don't get leave to appeal, the only option then will be to petition the SCA, SCA directly, directly, Yes, which is going to be very interesting because if yes. they don't get it, there's pretty harsh ramifications for the president. Yes, but he also has, um, you know, other options, um, as well. But I mean, that let's see what happens in court and, uh, what he opts to do. But looking forward to seeing you all at the gathering. Absolutely. I hope you'll be, you'll be ready for selfies. I'm sure a lot of people want to get some selfies. <laughs> She loves non-committal. Yeah, okay. no, I hate selfies. <laughs> we'll try again on Friday. And Jenny, thank you so much. Now, to to switch gears a bit, um, one of the big sort of topics from the weekend was about 
the terror threat, right? What's going on? These, these sort of press releases from, from the US embassy. And we saw the, that our sort of ranking with one of the British foreign offices was, was, was increased from medium to high. So the question was, what's going on? So we reached out to Ryan Cummings, who's a director at Signal Risk. And his job is basically to, to, to use intelligence and support to mitigate security risk in Africa. So we're digging into what's going on with the terror alerts. Should be, should we be worried? Are we prepared for, for, for any sort of situation happening? And secondly, it's been a year since Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari took office. So it's looking back at how much has he had to deliver on. He rode on a campaign of change. And of course, he had been president before, something that some people forget. So could we really expect anything different from him? So we spoke to Ryan Cummings to really break down these two topics. And yeah, here's the interview. Um, please give it a listen. First, we'll be speaking about, you know, what's, what's on everybody's minds and what's on Twitter and what everybody's talking about, which is the... The, the, the threat of a terror attack here in South Africa, here at home. Um, and Ryan, I'd love to just start with the, the terror alerts that we received. So one was over the weekend from the U.S. Embassy, and they and they sort of alerted that they, they have information about a near-term attack locally on uh, uh, places where U.S. citizens congregate. And we saw two weeks ago the British Foreign Commonwealth Office increasing the South African terrorism rating to high. So, I mean, Ryan, I just want to hear from you. I mean, what, what do we believe? I mean, on, on one hand, it sounds like there's reason to panic <laughs> with, with sort of these two reasons. And on the other hand, you know, we've heard alerts before and nothing happened. I mean, as recently as last year, you know, we got an alert and nothing happened. So I'm, I'm just love to hear from you. How much weight do you put on these recent alerts? Well, I think, you know, the, the, the first issue we kind of need to consider is that um, the United States and many other foreign governments have a legal obligation to react, um, you know, to instances where they receive um, intelligence, uh, you know, warning of a potential terrorist attack, security threat or political mm. development, which mm. could either place their interests or citizens within a foreign country at threat. And I think that this was potentially the case here. Um, as you know, the, the United States um, are actively monitoring various avenues um, for intelligence, um, and there may have been some inclination, as there were, uh, as you mentioned, you know, in 2015, there was some chat in 2009 as well about potential threats against U.S. embassies and diplomatic representations in South Africa, which prompted them to issue an advisory, and I think that this is possibly the case here. Again, how discernible and credible that threat is, is open to, um, you know, to, to, to further conversation um, and further dissection. Um, but once they do receive some form of information that they could even just potentially be some form of security development, you know, placing U.S. interests and citizens at risk, they, they are, are legally obliged to, to react to it. Um, but, but in terms of the terrorism threat in South mm-hmm. Africa, I think, you know, uh, what people often miss, um, is that they, they tend to not see, um, terrorist organizations as being, um, you know, as being like any organization, you know, that acts, um, you know, in a specific way to specific circumstances. One would be very, very hard pressed to find a terrorist organization that executes attacks indiscriminately. Most of the time, um, countries and governments and specific Specific interests are targeted, uh, you know, due to the uh, respective governments' uh, domestic and foreign policies, which usually are aimed at curtailing the, um, 
you know, the, the operations of terrorism groups. And I think when we look at South Africa, it's quite interesting from a domestic policy perspective, but also from a foreign policy perspective, mm. we've completely, um, you know, removed ourselves from any counter-terrorism or counter-insurgency operations, you know, targeting Islamist extremist groups, not only on the continent, but, but globally as well, you know, whether it's Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab, or the Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb movement, South Africa has not supported um, counter-terrorism operations against these groups, um, and therefore there isn't any reason um, at this stage, uh, you know, for these organizations to be planning some form of, you know, reprisal um, against, uh, you know, assets within South Africa's borders. I mean, I love that you brought that up, because when we saw the Garissa attacks in Kenya, and we saw the attacks in Paris, there was always sort of logically, even just for, um, you know, your day-to-day person looking at the country's involvement, there was almost a logic to this is why you are our enemy based on your policy. So you're saying based on South Africa's local, not local, but continental policy activity and international policy activity that we should, were fairly neutral in terms of matters concerning Syria and matters concerning terrorism? Yeah, most most definitely, and I think that you know we've, we've kind of made that that stance quite explicit, um, mm. you know, in terms of our um, action or sort of should I say inaction, you know, to conflicts that's um, happening across the world. I mean, South Africa has involved itself in some form of uh, um, you know conflicts on the continent. For example, we see that you know um, the South African Defence Force uh, plays a role in the FIB or the Foreign Intervention Brigade that's currently uh, being deployed um, in northeast. In DRC, uh, where they actively had uh, curtailed, um, you know, the insurgent operations of groups such as the M23 um, and also the the Hutu-based FDLR. Um, you know, we we recently saw with um, the crisis in the Central African Republic, you know, that the South African mm-hmm. military also had, um, mm-hmm. you know, played a role in terms of protecting the regime of Francois Bouzis, you know, against the um, advance of the Salika rebels. Unfortunately, it wasn't as, as successful as we would have liked it to have been, and it ended up with Bouzis being, you know, ousted um, from the, the CAR presidency. Um, but again, you know, we, we have involved ourselves in continental conflicts, but none of which have focused on, um, you know, Islamist extremist groups mm. who have often, you know, lashed out at countries and governments who yep. have, um, you know, provided either operational logistical support to counterterrorism initiatives by launching attacks within their own borders. Mm. And then we also kind of need to speak to domestic um, policies in South Africa. I think what we would see um, in many countries, which is kind of congruent with um, terrorism and radicalization of specific communities within those countries, is how governments tend to be intolerant, um, you know, to certain faith groups, to certain communities. Um, you know, for example, in Kenya, apart from the Kenyan government actually involving itself in counterterrorism operations in neighboring Somalia, we've always seen um, historically marginalization of, of the so-called ethnic Somali community, which uh, lives in the northeast of the country mm-hmm. and where, you know, it was actually the domestic um, socioeconomic and political policies adopted by the Kenyan government, which led to a homegrown terrorism threat emanating from those communities who 
felt, you know, completely marginalized and, you know, disenfranchised um, by the Kenyan government in South Africa. You know, um, we are a secular country first and foremost, but there is a high degree of tolerance for um, a number of, um, you know, minorities, whether that be, you know, from a racial perspective or from a religious and cultural perspective. So, again, you know, all of those... Um, you know, all of those little uh, political, social and economic grievances that one almost associates um, with the proliferation um, and development mm. um, of, of homegrown terrorism and domestic terrorism is, is just kind of, of missing in this country, which I think is, is another reason why, um, you know, we haven't been targeted in the terrorist attack, um, you know, either from a domestic group or from a transnational entity. Um, I mean, some people point to uh, South African or South African individuals' involvement with, with, with terrorist activity, and they point to um, South Africans that have been found, uh, perhaps after they're deceased and their paperwork is South African, or arrested in transit to go and join ISIS, and they say perhaps they're not large groups, but there seems to be some individuals who are, who are heeding the call um, to join ISIS or feel some kind of resonance with their cause. And where do you think this comes from, these sort of individuals who want to be a part of this? And could that be a reason, perhaps, where there is some cause for concern locally? Yeah, that's actually a very, very good point. I think what we need to notice is that the advent of the Islamic State and yeah. the specific expansionary model has seen an evolution in terrorism. I mean, usually you'd have groups such as Al-Qaeda who branched out, you know, from their um, so-called uh, birthplace in, in South Asia and in, you know, Waziristan region of Pakistan and, you know, uh, which which obviously borders, borders Afghanistan. Um, and they were able to set up, you know, little operational cells um, across the world, generally mm -hmm. linking on to countries where you already had you know, so-called Islamist extremist groups with local grievances against the government. I mean, what Al-Qaeda would do is kind of, you know, brand these guys as Al-Qaeda franchises, um, you know, by giving them logistical and financial support and kind of calling on them to not only, you know, fight their domestic battles, but also further the Al-Qaeda um, you know, so-called Razandata of, 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 you know, overthrowing Middle Eastern regimes and by doing so, you know, to focus um, attacks on, on, on Western governments, you know, within these areas and, and the reason being to kind of, you know, um, see Western governments just removing themselves from these contexts and stopping their support for, for, for governments within these areas and specifically for governments within the Middle East because, you know, the, the belief um, for Al-Qaeda is that, um, you know, with a lot of these um, countries' support, I mean, I focus a lot on the Middle East, but we can um, extend this to much of the Arab world and mm. even to, to large parts of West Africa. Um, the sentiment is that if Western governments stop their patronage of North African regimes, um, of certain West Africa regimes, then, you know, they, these governments would effectively just crumble. Um, and then you'd have large Muslim com communities that's going to ready for radicalization and ready to kind of, uh, you know, um, lead to the achievement of, of Al-Qaeda's goal, which is the goal of the Islamic um, State as well, which is this unification of the Muslim world, you know, that is governed, um, you know, strictly to the, under the principles of Sharia law. But what the Islamic State has done is, you know, it's, it's been able to permeate areas where there aren't any specific Islamist extremist groups that are operating or that has specific gripes to the governments. What they've been able to do is kind of, you know, focus on the individual who personally feels marginalized, who personally 
feels a disconnect from his government and they've been able to turn this individual um, as an operative, you know, um, without necessarily being affiliated to the group. We've seen mm. these lone wolf actors committing acts of terrorism on the behalf of the Islamic State, um, you know, but they, they, they've never probably met, um, you know, any individuals of the mm. Islamic State. They've just been completely self-radicalized. So this is a type of of terrorism phenomenon, which is, is so difficult to predict, um, you know, and so difficult to obviously plan against, because you basically have to go, you know, into the into the psyche of an individual, you know, looking at the propaganda from his laptop screen, um, and then acting on it. Um, so again, you know, this is the type of threat where we just cannot simply discount it from occurring in South Africa, and specifically when we've seen that there are individuals within the South African community who seems to find resonance with the, um, the message that is sent by Islamic State. I mean, you know, we've, we've obviously seen reports of, of families and individuals who've been um, kind of um, intercepted whilst on route to traveling to the Levant, you know, to live in, in the caliphate, uh, you know, in the, in, in Iraq and Syria. There have even been reports of, um, you know, provided by the Iraqi ambassador who suggested that he's got information of South African nationals who were killed while fighting alongside mm-hmm. the Islamic State, you know, and that their deaths have been covered up as, as road accidents, you know, and presented, um, to their families in this regard. Um, there was also, interestingly enough, uh, I think it was earlier this year, where um, some uh, Shiite militias who've been actively fighting the Islamic State in, in, in Iraq um, came across uh, a group of, of Islamic State combatants that they that they had killed, and they found a South African driver's license on, on one of these individuals. So there's definitely the concern that you know the Islamic State's message is resonating among some South Africans. Many of them are choosing to fight and to travel to um, to the caliphate, but there may be a few who would just um, want to kind of bring the war to, to the home front and potentially, um, you know, execute attacks against, you know, Islamic State's greatest adversaries, which is obviously, you know, Western governments yeah. that are actively countering the, the group, not only um, in the Levant, but also in the more recently in, in North Africa, specifically in, in Libya. Um, so that is a concern, and it's definitely not something that we can't take off the table at this time. I hear you. Um, one of my final questions on this is just about this idea that South Africa is a safe haven for recruits. Um, so this idea, and this, this was very popular, especially post the Garissa attack in Kenya, and there was conversations about the so-called white widow, Samantha Luthwaite, and there was this idea that South Africa is a great place to be in transit or a safe haven. And some people point to this as a reason why the country would remain safe, because it's it's working as a as a safe house, so to speak. Well, what is your take on that? Well, I think uh, it's yeah. difficult to, to disagree with the evidence. Um, you know, uh, take <laughs> the, the Luthwaite angle, where um, I mean that is something. You know, whether Samantha Luthwaite ever had discernible ties to Al Shabaab is, is open for debate. Um, you know, even if she did, there, there's just no evidence to suggest that she had played any operational role within the group. That you know that she was any form of a, of a significant asset to them. Um, but what was interesting was uh, post-Westgate attack, the Kenyan intelligence had um, released a report which was actually um, somehow, uh, you know, made 
made public um, by Al Jazeera, and and you know the contents of the report were, were quite frightening because a lot of um, the information contained in this briefing suggested that the Kenyan intelligence had on a number of occasions thwarted um, Al Shabaab plots um, within Kenya, and one of these plots, which was uh, masterminded by the same individual behind um, the Westgate attack. Uh, this was the Al-Shabaab operative by the um, Nom de Guerra of, of Ikrima, um, was to target um, a number of uh, key installations within Nairobi, um, if I'm not mistaken. I think the, the uh, Kenyan parliament was, was one of those uh, facilities that was supposed to be targeted in Ikrima's plots. And it actually had mentioned... Um, that the attack was going to be um, commissioned via the use of South African-trained Al-Shabaab mm. operatives. So this, this was, you know, kind of the more um, real, really discernible evidence of, of South African links um, to to the Al-Shabaab movement. But even preceding that, I mean, there's been a number of cases of, uh, you know, um, designated um, terrorists, uh, terrorists, I should say, um, you know, being arrested and found to be in the possession of South African documentation, whether that was fraudulent or whether it was legitimate uh, documentation that's it's still open to debate. Um, but, you know, they were traveling on, on, on South African on documents. That was the, the chosen form of documentation by these individuals. There was also some instances showing that they um, had resided in South Africa at, at, at some point in time. Um, so, you know, we've, we've also seen, you know, um, back on the Al-Shabaab issue, uh, there was an interesting study done by the Institute of Security Studies, uh, one of their senior researchers, Anneli Buerta, um, who had herself claimed that she had um, interviewed some Somali nationals who claimed to be Al-Shabaab operatives and mm. claimed to have been, uh, you know, residing in South Africa, receiving um, training more from a logistical perspective, mm. um, but definitely with discernible links to, to the organization. So the information is there, it is out there, um, and, you know, I think it's difficult to argue uh, against the point that South Africa, um, you know, could not be used uh, or, uh, you know, as a, as an operation, or should I say as a logistical and financing hub for some of these groups. Um, I think, you know, we, we kind of always focus on, on the terrorism angle, but mm. what we'll often find is that certain countries that host, you know, transnationalist criminal syndicates, you know, why, why would they not host um, terrorism networks as well, you know, because you kind of are operating, uh, you know, in the, in the same space and using the, the same mechanisms to, um, to kind of fly under the radar. And, and it does make sense that to a certain degree, and I wouldn't say necessarily immunizes one against the, uh, you know, threat of attack, but it does lower the threat considerably. Um, you know, a perfect example was, you know, during the Westgate attack or, or prior to the Westgate attack, Kenya was seen as uh, Al-Shabaab's probably the most important um, logistical and financial base outside of Somalia. Um, you know, unfortunately, there was a spate of kidnappings that occurred um, in the northern regions of the country, the coastal regions of the country, and then we saw the Kenyan uh, military um, involving itself in Somalia, and then there was obviously the, the Westgate attack, which launched a significant crackdown on Al-Shabaab operations, not as much well, in addition to Somalia, but also in Kenya, which kind of dismantled a lot of those networks. And, 
And, and let's be honest, if, if that was the case in South Africa, um, there would be considerable efforts by our government and by our security agencies to kind of detect individuals, if, if there are any or any groups who are involved in, in operations, um, you know, within, within our borders to kind of finance um, and provide, you know, logistical support to terrorism activities elsewhere, but specifically terrorism activities in countries where these groups have a legitimate gripe and grievance um, you know, with the, with the countries and authorities they're facing. And, you know, as I previously mentioned, that, that motivation just seems to be missing in, in South Africa. I hear you, Ryan. It sounds like, you know, based on our domestic and, you know, foreign policy, there, there might be some, some room to be a bit relieved and perhaps feel a bit more peaceful than the, than the, the headlines are making it sound. Um, no, Ryan, I'd like to just switch, uh, switch gears a bit and switch to a different country altogether and talk a bit about Nigeria. Um, so it's been a year since the, the President Muhammadu Buhari has taken office. Um, and, you know, as, as, as one does with these milestones, you know, a, a lot of us are looking back and, and thinking, how's he done? Um, I, I look back to a year ago now and there was such excitement about it being a, 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 an actual democratic election in a country that's known for, for military coups and taking power by force. And his campaign was a lot about change. Um, and I'm curious about what you think 12 months in, do you think that excitement and sort of popular opinion and positivity around President Buhari still remains? Well, I think it's just been a very difficult 12 months for Buhari. And I think it's been filled with, with successes, but it's also been uh, filled with, with, with some disappointments. Um, and some of which, which has been outside of Buhari's control completely. And I think the, the most uh, concerning of that has obviously been the dip in the... Um, you know, in the global oil price, mm. the fact that, you know, the Nigerian economy, you know, um, you know, oil revenue forms the, the backbone of that. And the country has been hit hard, um, you know, by um, declining oil revenues, which has kind of been compounded by the fact that we've seen a spate of, of, of terrorism attacks, you know, within the oil producing Niger Delta region, which is the, you know, impacted the country's ability of actually producing the crude oil, you know, that it needs to sell, um, you know, to kind of get, um, you know, the foreign exchange to, to keep its economy alive. And that's just had, you know, significant impacts for, for Buhari and, you know, to kind of um, put in place the various plans he had to reform Nigeria's economy, but also just to have the financial resources to address the myriad of security challenges that the country faces. Um, I think, you know, first and foremost of, of, of these challenges is obviously the Boko Haram insurgency, um, you know, and the impact that it's had on, on the country. But I think it is one of the silver linings of the Buhari regime. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was kind of, um, I would, I would tend to say that the Boko Haram issue um, burgeoned under the tenure of um, President Goodluck Jonathan. And I think that um, in action or indecision, I should say, by his government kind of saw this, this issue spiral out of control and, you know, to the point where it's become, you know, one of the most deadliest um, insurgencies, you know, in, in, um, in modern times. Uh, I think there was a report last year, which, you know, is still open to debate that program was ranked as the deadliest um, tourism group across the world in terms of the number of fatalities. The insurgency had um, kind of, uh, you know, accrued um, over the, the, the 12 months between 2014 and 2015. But definitely under Buhari's watch, we've kind of seen a decline 
um, in Boko Haram's operations. Um, you know, these attacks have, have become less frequent, they've become less deadly, and they've also become isolated, you know, to the real rural hinterlands of the country's northeast, where, as you know, prior to his assumption of the Nigerian presidency, Boko Haram were, you know, attacking as far south as the capital Abuja and as far west as the city of Sokoto. Now they're kind of just operating within their traditional strongholds, which is in uh, rural Borno, Adamawa, and your best states in the northeast, and, and finding it very difficult um, to kind of, you know, execute these, these attacks in the cities, which had become, you know, a daily occurrence, you know, uh, uh, for, for much of, of, you know, 20, 2011 to about 20, uh, 2015. But most importantly, I think in the uh, latter half of 2014, we saw Boko Haram actually assimilating territory in um, northeast Nigeria and actually capturing some towns. And, you know, at one point there were claims that the group had actually controlled an area the size of Belgium um, within Nigeria. And from what it seems is that much of, 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 of rebel-held territory in Nigeria has been reclaimed. The Nigerian military seems to be gaining the upper hand against the group. Um, look, it's, it's by no means claiming that, that the program insurgency is dead because I think, you know, the, the, uh, it's still a long way to go before that is being achieved, but I think that the Nigerian government um, is on the correct trajectory and I think that Buhari needs to be commended for that, you know, apart from um, kind of continuing um, the um, military offensive against Boko Haram position, something that's been, you know, a key aspect of his regime was his um, focus on kind of mending uh, diplomatic ties with neighbors such as Cameroon and Niger and Chad, which Nigeria historically had quite strained relations with. And Buhari has kind of made, uh, you know, the first, um, the first, uh, you know, key points of, of, of his presidential tenure to go and visit, you know, um, his, his uh, counterparts in these countries and kind of, you know, visit them on home soil um, and, and establish a joint framework in, in terms of, of tackling um, Boko Haram. And I think that that um, has, has paid dividends. Um, but there's also been aspects of his presidency which has kind of, you know, not panned out. As, as well as it should have. I think uh, one of the most glaring issues at the moment is this failure to kind of make explicit what his government is going to be doing in terms of the um, herdsman um, crisis that we're currently seeing in North Central where um, the so-called Fulani militias, which is basically, um, you know, these militias that are claimed to be tied to the, the Fulani pastoralist group, um, which operates across much of North and Central Nigeria mm-hmm. and have been claimed to be behind a lot of massacres on, on um, farming communities out in North um you know, Buhari has, has not responded, um, you know, to this issue as decisively as many Nigerians would like to see. And again, it's one of the circumstances that if you're not going to be responding to the insecurity, you know, um, with the rapidity and decisiveness that, that you should be, all of a sudden, you know, the issue kind of burgeons out of control and you can yeah. have another Boko Haram on your hands. Um, you know, the, the other issue as well is um, there are, you know, as I previously mentioned, renewed violence in the Niger Delta, in the oil-producing region. Um, there doesn't seem to be yet a, a, a formalized approach by the Nigerian government to deal with this the longer this is allowed to fester, the bigger the impact it's going to have on the oil industry, the less revenue the Nigerian government is going to be able to derive 
um, you know, from the hydrocarbon industry in the Niger Delta. And, you know, the more difficult it is going to be for, for the government to just meet its, its various financial commitments, um, which in itself is just going to have quite detrimental, um, you know, social, political and economic impacts um, on the Nigerian government. So all in all, I think it's been um, pretty uh, pretty tough for, for, for Buhari, but, you know, he is hoping that things uh, might get a bit better moving forward. That was Ryan Cummings, director at Signal Risk, just breaking down for us the terror threats in the country and, of course, wrapping up one year of President Muhammadu Buhari in Nigeria. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to share and download the podcast. We'll see you this Friday at the Vodacom Dome at the Gathering. Have a great week. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com.